Hi everyone, and welcome back to Lava Site Chats. This time I sat down with Byron, who goes by Abolish Prenups on Twitter, and uh, we dove straight into a conversation about creativity, about how a lot of content being put out today is really just recycled content, and about what it actually takes to create something that is truly original. Um, it's a longish one, so uh, I say we get straight to it. Please enjoy this lava side chat with Abolish Prenups. So, Byron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, HK. I guess that's the appropriate way to address you is obviously your Twitter handle. Harvey. Yeah, I think that works for now. Cool. So, um, I thought of, of diving into into this conversation with something we talked about uh, last time we spoke, which was you were explaining how a lot of the content that you see today seems to be like a recycled or, or digested form of other content. And it gets into this, this like roborose loop of content just being inspired by other content and not much stuff being inspired from primary experiences that are that people are having so um yeah i'm, I'm curious like how how you see that whether it's in filmmaking because i know that's your thing or or just in other fields as well yeah i think there is a bit of an epidemic to be honest that might sound a little bit extreme but i really do think the problem has become so rife that it's reaching pretty or has already reached pretty epic proportions of interfering what, with what I would consider great artistic work. And mm -hmm. as you say, it's this regurgitating of what, already, what is already out there in the zeitgeist of art and culture. Um, there's plenty of people that have spoken about this uh, probably in more depth and detail than I can now, but I can certainly present my own sort of take on the dilemma. And I mean, the idea of it being a problem probably first was crystallized in me uh, from a photographer that I was doing some work with. And I think he might've implanted the idea of a snake eating its tail as an easy way to encapsulate this problem. Mm -hmm. And that essentially, if you as a creative person or an artist are relying on existing work in order to inspire your own work as the only primary uh, or central mode of inspiration, essentially you're, you're getting information that is already abstracted, you're getting information that is already colored uh, you know, by other people's uh, experiences and tastes and so forth. And, and there is very much this kind of cyclical effect. And I guess for me personally, this is particularly particularly present in the film world. Uh, I, I, could probably identify it in most creative spheres. But as you say, I'm a filmmaker and I consume a fair chunk of films and I spend a lot of my time sort of absorbing that world in its current state. And uh, it's so easy to identify in the film world. And, and I would say most people, you know, just your, your everyday person is more than willing to, to complain about the state of film in this regard. You know, most people have had the conversation of, you know, I can't believe that they're remaking this film. I can't believe they're just revamping that franchise. I can't believe um, that there are no new and interesting stories coming out of Hollywood. 
etc cetera, etc cetera. obviously the continual referring to to the comic book world as a means of um, creating bankable projects is uh, is continually there and and much to many people's dismay, including my own. Not that I'm you know vehemently against comic book films. I'm just saying it's a little bit sad if, if that's all we have to offer uh, yeah. as the as the central output of what Hollywood can provide. And so, yeah, the more specifically with film, I think that. You know, as a millennial myself, an older millennial in my mid-30s, I'm just constantly surrounded by other millennials who, uh, and I can see it, you know, personally, firsthand through the experiences with people, but also just through the work that I can see that's made, whether I've met the filmmakers or not, that they are essentially people that are still enamored with a certain nostalgia for the films that they grew up in, be it the 90s, the 80s, or even the early 2000s now and really just take it upon themselves to try and create you know a carbon copy of sorts or at least um a new take of this old type of film perhaps like a really good example is um like super eight i don't know if you saw that film yeah it's a little bit of an obscure one to mention but yeah for some reason i always think of that when i think about this problem because it really was essentially uh, a throwback obviously to um, a little bit out of my depth here because I'm not even massively into this genre but I guess like you know the Steven Spielberg type films of the 90s I guess like the Goonies is probably the big mm -hmm. one that it's maybe referencing and um, I'm not sure if that's Steven Spielberg or not but you know I feel like it, it might as well be. Uh, Super 8 is Steven Spielberg right? I'm not sure, actually. I think, no, I think it might be J.J. Abrams. Ah, uh, right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, which I think for many people is a contemporary Spielberg. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, it is just so much, you know, not obviously only in its content in terms of um, the sorts of themes and, and characters that it has uh, a reference to those earlier films, but just stylistically, um, you know, what it has to offer the audience is just all nostalgia it's all throwback and it's nothing new and um yeah so that's i guess what i'm seeing in, in the film world that's what i would consider to be a quintessential example of this problem but I, as i say i think i think you can see it across many domains and and i guess the sort of crude way of articulating what's happening is is that in many domains you basically have people swallowing their Instagram feed, their Pinterest, Pinterest feed, Tumblr, you know, whatever it may be. And that becomes their prim primary mode uh, of inspiration. And the, I guess, antithesis of that is the Werner Herzog sort of school of thought, which is that in order to be truly inspired, in order to make work that um, has real truth to it, has real depth to it, has something that has, um, yeah, real, real meaning and I guess reality, you have to have your own personal experiences. And he, uh, in an extreme way, has articulated this by saying that his perfect film school is to throw people out into the jungle. And although he may not have been entirely serious with that comment, I do think that uh, it's not a crazy thing to, to throw out there and whether it's half joke or entirely joke, I'm not sure, but uh, or even entirely serious, 
I, I think it's a really interesting idea and I think it has a lot of legs to it. And I do try to embody that school of thought um, to a large degree myself. Cool. Yeah, so before, before diving into the, the primary experiences element of all this, um, just in what you were mentioning, I was thinking like what, what can explain this problem of, of the digesting and redigesting content um, why does this problem exist today? And um, two explanations that came up to mind when you were mentioning uh, comic book movies, I thought, you know, the film houses, of course, have the, the interest or pressure to, to have like these huge blockbuster films and make money. Um, so there's that, you know, incentive that might be going against creating something that's completely new and that uh, might be a little bit more risky from the financial perspective. Um, and then when you mentioned Instagram and Pinterest and consuming all these feeds, I wonder if you know something that's new today is that there is so much content that it's super easy to fill our waking hours with it and essentially, you know, end up crowding out all time that we could have used to have primary experiences by doing something else where we're not consuming something that's already been created by someone else. Yeah. So the first thing, definitely there is an economic incentive to, uh, to essentially lean on the back of an existing franchise that has a fan base. I had a screenwriter, lecturer or professor once say that basically studios love to be the first person to do something second. So by that, it means they want to see that uh, such an idea is going to be highly successful. Mm -hmm. And then they want to be the first person to jump on that bandwagon, um, you know, before it starts to get exploited too much or, or you know, or lose its, um, its spark. Obviously, by the fourth and fifth, you know, sequel to a franchise, the numbers are starting to drizzle out. But if you're number two uh, as a sequel or, or whatever project attached to a franchise, that's where you can really make the big bucks if, if the first has really gone down very well. So that idea, I guess, yeah, has always made economic sense. Um, at the end of the day, yes, things like studios are risk adverse, risk averse and you know, when it comes to the film industry, the thing I guess I like to remind people of is that we live in a particularly conservative time um, because, you know, the era that I fell in love with in the early 2000s, there was a lot of money coming in from DVD sales, DVD rentals, uh, and then box office sales. And so studios had money to burn on riskier projects. And, and so I like to cite examples like Fight Club, Eternal Sunshine, being John Markovich. Um, for example, these are indie films, but they still commanded a decent sized budget. I can't remember exactly what Fight Club is, but it's probably, you know, 30-ish, uh, you know, maybe even 50 or 60 million dollar budget, which is unheard of today for such a crazy, uh, crazy script that, you know, doesn't necessarily have much marketability. And so today it's a very different economic landscape uh, in the film industry. Things are certainly looking at least more stable now that we have the streaming world down packed and we know exactly 
um, what we're in for. And there is certainly money coming in for those streaming services, but um, it's still a shadow of what it once was for a certain segment of the film industry. In terms of the other point you made, which is basically you're saying that there's just not enough hours in the day now that we're all addicted um, to social media. Is that fair to say? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, maybe I won't simplify it as much to the number of hours, but just like it's there's a fire hose of content, multiple fire hoses of content out there waiting for you, you know, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. And I can just imagine that that makes it easier to just get caught up in, in, in that cycle and not be as motivated to, to go pursue uh, your own primary experiences that can inspire your own art. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I do think that in many ways, Twitter, Instagram, and various social media uh, is so perfectly engineered to develop a pretty potent or intense hit of stimulation, both from a creative perspective, particularly, I guess, on Instagram, if you're a filmmaker, for example, and you're following a whole bunch of highly creative people that are producing audiovisual content that that um, can really satiate you in a, in a 15 second Insta story or a one minute um, post. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it is just so easy to let that, you know, those intense short bursts just provide um, your inspiration. Uh, and, and over, I guess the past decade, these social media platforms have gotten progressively good at providing that hit. So it is, I would say problematic that it is just so good at that. And it is so tempting uh, to simply rely on it. And I think it is gonna take a real conscious effort on creatives to have the discipline um, to curb either their usage on there or, or even you know, to be very, very mindful about who they're following uh, and to create some kind of curbing effect through that. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, with the other part that you mentioned, which is the nostalgia, all these millennials uh, creating content, creating films that, you know, throw us back to the 80s, 90s, aughts. I feel like this isn't necessarily something new, like the, the nostalgia bit of wanting to, uh, to create stuff in, in previous decades, usually... Um, whenever it was that you went through childhood or, or were a teenager, because you have all those really strong emotions and memories associated to that time. Um, but somehow it seems like today it's happening on a much larger scale. Uh, I don't know if, if you share that impression, you obviously have a, a much better sense of the film world than I do. Yeah, my mind just started to drift into the much broader, slightly more philosophical perspective on this. And I was trying to remember, um, there is, I guess you would call him a philosopher, if not a commentator or cultural commentator. Oh, yeah, I think his name is like Mark Fraser or Foster. Hopefully I can remember later and you can maybe throw it in the description or something. Sure. 
but he's essentially, I think, a postmodernist who has an intense critique of capitalism. And, um, you know, for what it's worth, my whole take on that is a little bit more complex and it's a little bit more of a love-hate relationship. But he, uh, from what I've gathered, and I really want to read more of his stuff and, and watch more of his interviews, but from what I gathered has a very interesting sort of take on how much we are all essentially just living in the aftermath of previous decades now at this point in history, mm-hmm. that essentially the idea of any new culture is a complete farce and that we are literally just constantly regurgitating, I suppose, uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and I guess potentially noughts. But where we just live in this kind of haze of just perpetual um, regurgitation. And I guess he probably cites uh, how much the internet has played a role in that, but also how much uh, potentially capitalism has played a role in that. So that's like the much broader take, which again, I don't um, have much more than I, I can personally offer, but hopefully I can steer some people to look into him because I think it's super interesting. And, and I myself want to educate myself more on that particular perspective. But the more specific, uh, I guess, angle that I have is that, yes, it's true. We've always, you know, as a, as a species been referential of the past and I've always wanted to be connected with our history, our ancestry, tradition, culture, I guess, by almost by definition is, is something historical. Um, but like you imply, I do think that there is another level of it that has accelerated in recent history I do think that the internet plays a huge role in that phenomenon. And specifically with the film world, I think there's a number of factors that have enabled this acceleration of this problem of, uh, of being enamored with the past and, and being solely focused on nostalgia. And if I were to list those, I would say, first of all, yeah, probably the, the economic disincentives to to take risks as a result of it you know the film industry just being less profitable than Mm -hmm. it once was but then also uh i would even cite things like uh the culture war and political correctness and uh a general hesitance for people to step outside um of their comfort zone into something that might ruffle a few feathers and Mm. i guess that's entangled with the internet in the sense that i think people are more conscientious about stuff they put their name to that's literally going to be impossible to delete and it's going to exist forever they're more conscientious about the fact that they can be cancelled that their social groups etc you know dependent on them sort of saying the right thing at certain points and um And I guess generally the increase in divisiveness has meant that people, you know, inside their echo chambers are increasingly less exposed to ideas outside of their own paradigms. And this means that um, they're just increasingly unaware of new ideas and experiences uh, outside of the, you know, little pocket of the internet and little pocket of the real world, which are obviously highly interrelated. Mm -hmm. So those are probably three big things that I think factor into why we're particularly enamored with the, the past at the moment. And essentially they're all incentives against risk-taking. They're all incentives against 
um, conjuring things that are truly new because new is, you know, essentially always dangerous. It ought mm-hmm. to be always dangerous. And, um, and I think that, uh, uh, yeah, taking the safe option for various reasons is in- increasingly uh, the go-to for, for people generally, but especially creatives. Yeah. So who are the creatives that are taking the other path? Like, you know, you mentioned Werner Herzog. Um, I don't know much about him beyond him being sort of this madman filmmaker. Um, but I'm really curious to get a sense of, you know, who are the type of people that are completely disregarding um, these trends in terms of regurgitating content and doing the easy thing by, by appealing to nostalgia and who instead are going out and, you know, creating something that's truly from scratch and truly trying to uh, add something that's new into into whether it's film music whatever uh, and really make some waves that way such a good question the very very bleak answer is that i just really no one. don't yeah i mean basically that that's what it is for me in the in the film industry there's obviously positives and cons to that i mean i feel really inspired by the fact that you know as i embark on writing a feature film myself i really feel like um the world is kind of ripe for something that is uh, brave enough to think outside, to truly think outside the box and to not be beholden to groupthink and not be beholden to political correctness, so to speak. Uh, and the, and I guess this sort of narrowing paradigm of thought that exists in Hollywood and California and the film industry at large. Um, yeah, the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, even my quote unquote heroes that I sort of grew up on and uh, was, were inspired by have, I think gradually over time succumb to this group sync uh, as well. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's only natural and human that once you reach a certain level of success, uh, you do generally become complacent and you just have less incentive again to take big risks. You know, why, why risk having a solid career um, but I think more than that, it's just that they are sort of stuck in a certain paradigm and, and they can't sort of see their way out of it. You know, I grew up loving Charlie Kaufman. I love, uh, I love Spike Jones. I love Miranda July. Um, I probably have, you know, a reasonable amount of faith in Miranda July. She's not um, a hugely popular name, so you might not be familiar with her. But Yeah, but what, I is, say that what has she done? She has only made a few films. Uh, one has just recently come out, which I hadn't seen, haven't seen yet, called Gajillionaire. But I absolutely love her debut feature film. I think it's truly amazing. It's called Me and You and Everyone We Know. Mm-hmm. And I cite her as a hero because she's a little bit of a multidisciplinary artist, to use a slightly pretentious term. But she is a, a writer. She's a novelist um, who's produce some amazing writing. She's, as I mentioned, a filmmaker. She also acts in her films. She's a writer, director. She is also a performance artist. And so just a general artist period. And I think that has helped her a little bit to remain open and brave and courageous. And I guess one of the things that I love about her is that she's just so willing to be vulnerable uh, as a person and as an artist, and you can see that vulnerability in her work very clearly. And I also commend her for like kind of 
pushing the medium a little bit on Instagram. I think out of all of my heroes that I grew up on, she's the only one who um, uh, is really doing some interesting stuff in social media. And so I definitely give her credit there. And I think she is yeah, managing to be um, a little bit open and brave as a result of that. But ultimately, like to answer your question more directly, I am a Lars von Trier fan. And again, he is of an older ilk, an older generation. And I don't know that his best work is to come. I think it might be behind him. But nonetheless, he does still very much embody what I consider to be just the fierce bravery and courage that it takes um, to take to make truly good work. And, and although I don't know enough about his personal life to say that he has put a decent emphasis on personal experiences or as you call them, primary experiences. Uh, I, I have a lot of faith that, that he does uh, embody a lot of that philosophy and, um, and has that, you know, Werner Herzog streak in him as well. Yeah. What, what's but some of his work? I'm not, I'm not familiar with him. So Lars Montreal, a Danish filmmaker, he was at least one half of the, the people responsible for, for coining or forming the Dogma 95 Manifesto. Essentially, the Dogma 95 Manifesto I think it was made in 95, 1995, was a manifesto that stipulated a whole bunch of rules that him and his buddies, it might've just been him and one other guy, I'm not too sure, but that they had to adhere to in their films in order to essentially already stave away some of the temptations of making work that was superficial and devoid of true heart and soul. And so those rules were things along the lines of, you weren't allowed to use artificial lighting. You weren't allowed to use any production design. You had to use what was there. You could mm. only use sound recorded on set. You couldn't, you couldn't bring in any sound design and post. Extremely limiting uh, rules for a filmmaker, but were there because they already felt in 1995 that films were succumbing to to glitz and aesthetic and cinematography, sorry, I should say pretty cinematography. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were losing its connection with the fundamentals of film, be it story, character and performances. So out of the Dogma 95 manifesto came, you know, what I consider to be, yeah, just beautiful pieces of work. Uh, Dogville is, is one of my favorite films. Uh, Dancer in the Dark, Breaking the Waves, The Idiots. Uh, I think from what I've read, all of them, <laughs> I think might break one or two rules. Yeah. So, you know, there's contention about whether any of his films managed to fully stick to the manifesto they wrote. But like I say, I just mentioned a few of them. There were a lot of rules that were extremely limiting. The point for me is that they were thinking in those terms and forcing themselves to really maintain purity in their work. And, uh, and I think, their work was better for it and um yeah i mean today in 2020 you know it, it would i just don't think there's anyone even close to, to thinking in those terms and, and doing something like a dogma 95 manifesto um that kind of courage i think is is basically nowhere to be seen yeah i'm, I'm thinking about all of this right now in terms of artists who have something to say and and they're gonna find a way to say it regardless of the medium and those who are just 
playing around with the medium itself. Like when you mentioned the, the, the woman director, uh, what was her name? Miranda July. Right. So, so you mentioned that she's a multidisciplinary artist and uh, I always find characters like her really interesting. Um, like right now, Alejandro Jodorowsky comes to mind. Mm. He's not only a, a filmmaker, but also a poet. Um, he was uh, a tarot reader in Paris for a long time, also a theater director. Um, so with these characters that really, you know, get involved in all these different forms of expression, I get a sense that really what's driving them is something that they have deep down inside they, that they want to express and communicate with the world. And they don't lim limit themselves to just one discipline um, because that's usually too narrow for them to express it, express whatever it is they want to express in its totality. Um, and I guess the, the counterpoint to that is someone, um, you know, this might be a little bit more cynical, but just like someone who says, oh, I want to make films and they get into filmmaking and they learn the craft of filmmaking and they become really good at that craft, but might not have that, you know, deep, deep thing within themselves that they're trying to communicate with the world. And which is, you know, that's the thing that they um, are driven by to, to not just regurgitate past content or uh, lean on, on nostalgia or any of these things, um, but really go beyond whatever it is that's being put out there uh, today. Yeah, I think that like there are such compelling arguments for either school of thought. The whole conundrum of being a jack of all trades, master of none is a real issue and has a lot of weight to it and you know i'm constantly having this debate with myself as someone who identifies as a bit of a generalist and easily gets pulled in various directions and, and at a certain point it can be the detriment to ever fully excelling at one thing because i do at the end of the day philosophically believe strongly in the idea that if you want to be truly great at something you, you kind of need to block everything else out and and uh and just gradually hone that thing more and more and more and and obviously there are so many examples if not most examples of, of people who've created truly great work great work in any domain um have had that attitude but i guess i feel like this other way really deserves to have a short uh, a torch shine on it shine on it as well because um I think at the very least, it's such a great way of forcing openness and, and forcing a fluidity of mind and being able to just constantly think outside the box because that I think maybe we can um, sort of imply from this conversation seems to be something that's harder to achieve these days maybe. Or maybe it's just uh, something that ebbs and flows with time. Maybe I'm just incredibly biased and um, uh, it's not a, a trend of, there's not a trend that exists of, of decreasing open-mindedness, but I would say at the very least, regardless of whatever period in history you are, there, you're in, there is a crude trick that you can deploy to help you remain open, and that is to step outside of the domain that you spend most of your time in and try something completely different, and that will 
you know, at the very least trigger some kind of new neural pathways in your brain. It'll uh, potentially allow you to see problems and scenarios in a slightly different light. And so for someone like Miranda July, yeah, I mean, I think that her uh, debut feature film, for example, was probably bettered by the fact that she was a performance artist. I can see some of the scenes and some of the writing being influenced by that. And at the very least, it just creates uh, a point of difference in her work, something different, something you haven't seen before. And yeah, I think for myself, I'm definitely using this trick, shall we say, uh, as a way of keeping my mind open as well. Like right now, as I'm embarking on writing a feature, I'm trying to get into writing poetry, even though poetry has no direct implications Mm -hmm. um, to the film, just because I think it'll just change the way that I approach writing and, and um, it just creates another, you know, another a tool in the arsenal and, and just gets me thinking differently. I'm also thinking about, you know, making a board game uh, recently was something that's come to mind. And, and I genuinely can see that the way that my brain has to work to create a board game um, will help in my openness as I tackle other creative projects. Um, yeah. Wait, can you yeah. say more about the board game? Like, I'm just, I'm just trying this on, like thinking, what would it be like to design a board game? And uh, I'm already getting the sense that it'll be, you know, maybe difficult, but really interesting project to tackle. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't talk too soon because it really <laughs> hasn't reached any kind of solid phase yet other than just the, the general idea of making one in my brain. But uh, it is something that I thought on and off on about the years. Uh, I guess uh, maybe in my early 20s particularly, I really quite enjoyed board games and I thought it'd be a cool medium to, to participate in as a creator. I guess that feeling has never fully gone away and that I do think that there's something to be said about, you know, when one aspect of culture is taken off, it's a good time to try another aspect. So obviously video games are more popular than they've ever been. So in some ways it's a good time to make board games because no one's expecting it. I mean, I think you could probably attribute some of the success of, um, Cards Against Humanity, mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, an absolute cultural hit to the fact that there just aren't really, you know, many board games that get made these days. And I would say that people are kind of hungry for that mm -hmm. sort of real world interaction that you don't get from video games. And, and people are hungry for ways of just bringing us together into the same space. And you could probably also find data that we're, you know, more socially awkward than we've ever been. People are, or, you know, Zoomers, for instance, you could probably find some data that they have less social skills than, than previous generations. And so, yeah, things like board games, I, I think if you can get it right, if you can touch a nerve on contemporary culture, have a real chance of, um, of having a, an audience. And so uh, I guess as I sort of, find myself more and more clearly defined in this kind of Twitter click that we're in. Uh, I'm starting to throw around the term metamodernist more and more. Obviously we've used the, the word spiritual in our little chat. 
Yeah. Uh, these are all things that I feel like I would like to embody in a board game in some way, shape or form, essentially take it upon myself to try and create something that taps into these themes and somehow focuses on the common ground between people, regardless of their, let's say, identity or background, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously a very lofty aim without any specific ideas that I'm throwing at you, but I think you, you should start with what it is you want to achieve. Um, and so I love like Boulder Dash, for example, if you've ever heard of that, that's a, a game that pretty much already does the things that I'm, I'm looking to achieve. It's a, it's a highly creative game. Have you heard of it? Uh, I'm familiar with the name, but not anything beyond that. It's very simple. I think the later version had five categories. One of those categories is like the name of a film and you just have to write a short blurb, like one to two sentences on what that film is about. And so it's called Boulder Dash because you're essentially bluffing or lying or creating a, a fictionary, um, a piece of fiction. And yeah, in that particular category, it's, uh, it's creating a, a fake film story. And so, I love it because it forces creativity. Uh, and again, I think there is a theme of, of unity there because um, it's just highly u- universal. You know, you don't need a trivia background. You don't need to know any kind of niche, um, any niche things, you know. Uh, yeah, it can really appeal to anyone. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've never, personally, I've never or had never been big on board games or card games. Um, and I would even extend that to any sort of competition because I was never like the sporty type of kid in school. And um, it wasn't until recently that some friends of mine really got into playing Settlers of Catan. Mm. And um, I started joining them for these games and I really, really enjoyed it. And I found it super interesting how our social dynamics in, in this group of friends would completely change during gameplay. So, you know, for example, uh, one friend was, you know, more on the, the shy, quieter side, uh, would have never expected her to have an intense competitive streak. But once we started playing, she was the most ruthless at the table. <laughs> and uh, and it, be- it became really fun to, you know, be like fucking each other over through these different moves and um, just sort of that friendly competition and friendly banter, um, you know, helping each other out at some point, but then screwing each other over at another point that as, as a social dynamic, it's not something that would normally play out um, outside of playing a game but within this container where it's understood and it's just a game and we're doing this for fun, it was really, uh, it was really interesting to sort of LARP those dynamics, you know? Yeah. So, so I find just the idea of designing a board game to be super fascinating because I was, I would imagine that to make it a really good one, you'd have to have uh, a good sense of social dynamics and, and gameplay and, and the, the user experience of the game and have all of these things in mind as you go creating um, the rules and basically set up this, this container um, within which gameplay is going to occur. Totally. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, hats off to those that create these games that bring out these sides of people that you don't get to see elsewhere. And the way that you just described that just further increased my appreciation for the form or the medium. You know, these ideas that uh, people are behaving in such a way that, you know, you may know them for 10, 20 years and never get to see unless you play that particular game with them. Right. That's, um, that's really something, you know, <laughs> and yeah, I really do think board games have the potential to provide uh, a really interesting experience for people. And I would love it if the whole stigma of nerdism or geekism were be able to be eroded a bit from the notion of board games. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, I, I do think that more than ever, at least in my life, we are in need of having new types of dynamics uh, amongst people in social settings and that we just need to spend more time, you know, communicating with each other and in any way, but particularly in ways that maybe test us and, uh, and bring out new and interesting sides of us. And actually one, one thing that I thought of was uh, Miranda July also created this app. Actually, I think this has been a great example of, of how much of a multidisciplinary person she is but she created an app called i think it's somewhere or someone where Mm -hmm. basically i mean it's a totally crazy idea that you know clearly didn't have huge amounts of viability but at the same time is at least a very great piece of art if not more than that but what it was was that if you wanted to send a message to someone what this app did or does i think it might be closed now but what it did was it sent a message to someone near you who would then physically come to you and read it out to you. Um, So again, like she's all about trying to get people to interact, particularly strangers. This is something I guess I'm also passionate about is trying to get strangers to interact with each other. So essentially that's what this app did was that you would receive a message from someone, but through the vessel, of some stranger coming to you and reading it out to you. Uh, okay, so let's say I want to send a message to you. A third person, this stranger, would be the mm-hmm. one to, to deliver it to you by reading it aloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got it. There's a little video online that explains it and it has like a few use cases and it's kind of cute. And basically, I think one of them is you know, someone professing their love for somebody else and it's told by, <laughs> by the stranger. you know, some huge, uh, some huge old man with a beard, for example, uh, even though it's, it's a, a love letter that comes from, you know, some petite young woman or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, it's very cool. I mean, that, that's like a whole genre of, of potential games that could be interesting, you know, like, not happening around the table with people you know, but like on a much larger scale with strangers. Like you mentioning this app just reminded me of another one. Um, This was when I was living in Korea, so around 2012, 13. And um, it was an app where you would drop secret messages around the city. And it was almost like a digital message in a bottle type of thing, but it would stay in that specific ge- geological location. 
Wow. So then someone else with that app who would be walking by that street corner, for example, would get a notification that there's a little message nearby and they could go and, and read it. So it's almost like just stashing these little messages in random places around the city and um, anyone can pick them up and read them. I love that. I love it. So yeah, that just makes me think what sort of, you know, large scale games could be played like that through apps. Almost like Pokemon Go would be an example of that, but, um, yeah. but something that's, that's using that same medium and application and augmented reality and like a huge uh, board map, quote unquote, the whole city or however big you want to do it, but with a, a totally different theme and gameplay and experience for the people playing it. Yeah, my mind has always drifted into that terrain as well. And I think maybe my long, long-term plans are probably to get involved in something like that. And I guess I would love to bring my sort of director filmmaker brain um, into that kind of world where I feel like trying to create experiences for people that has some degree of curation and vision already um, brought to the table, but at the same time is open enough that people bring their own experiences and you open it up, you know, to, to the audiences and users to create the experiences is something that I think we'll likely see in the future. Um, I think that we're kind of dilly dallying our way to get there i'm kind of surprised it, you know it hasn't cropped up sooner but i do think we'll ultimately we'll get to that kind of place and and that ultimately this kind of thing will replace things like films to a large degree obviously i think there'll always you know be a market for any sort of medium people still go to the theater you know people still read books poetry still exists puppeteers still exist but at the same time culture shifts and things become increasingly and less popular and i do think that uh one day essentially video games and films will be superseded by this kind of real world interactive environment and uh and life itself will be heightened by technology and i guess the way i see this kind of thing playing out is that things like music um will very much become almost a designed aspect of your life and uh and yeah the way you move and go through your day um will have this sort of highly designed and and creative aspect to it so so like music that's responsive to whatever it is you're doing at that exactly moment yeah i've always thought that like <laughs> life would be just so much better if it was scored, you know? And I yeah. think that, that um, it's a big reason why I'm attracted to film is the relationship between music and visuals. And I honestly think that my love for film is at least half just the music. Like I just mm. love music so much and music is so universal. Basically everybody loves music. Um, and yeah, I feel like the idea of things like music being introduced into your waking life in, in a way that's technologically advanced and curated to your experiences is an idea that's just ripe for the taking and will eventually find its way into reality. Yeah, I would love for someone to create that and it happen automatically through AI or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
because I already do it. Like I'm obsessive also with this idea of scoring whatever it is I'm doing in the perfect way with music. Um, and I always do it when I have a really big trail race. So these will be, you know, five, six, seven, eight hour races. And I usually try to start off without music just to, you know, get into the rhythm and uh, really get in tune with my body. But after a while, it's like, all right, time to plug in the music and get that boost. And I'll literally spend hours, if not several days beforehand, trying to craft the playlist that I think will benefit me most during that race. Uh, so, you know, just thinking about, all right, hours one through three, I think are going to be on this uphill hours three to four. I have this section. What type of music do I want for each one of those types of terrains or thinking about how I'm going to be feeling, uh, you know, five hours into the race, I'll need uh, a few pick me ups in the playlist. Um, so yeah, I can only imagine if that were be being done for you automatically in all moments of your life, uh, could be very, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I love that you, that you put that amount of love and care into the music that can pull you along on that journey. Definitely the kind of thing I could see myself doing. Uh, I guess for a lot of people, like they I do a similar thing, I guess for their gym, if they're mm -hmm. for the gym session, if they're someone who's lifting a lot or pushing weights, just to get that little bit extra inspiration, you know, they love uh, some some thumping beats to get them all fired up. But um, yeah, you definitely took it to another level there by the attention of detail for a track for each terrain across your your long journey. I think that probably for some people, it's scared the idea of like an automated um service and yeah there's definitely some some scary slightly big brothery uh, implications for all of this stuff i guess for me you know firstly it's a part of me that just embraces um the reality of where we're going as a civilization i think it's it's pretty hard to turn off innovation um of course i like a lot of people, I kind of to and fro about how I feel about all of this. And I have my moments where I'm like, let's just stop and let's just um, get back to basics. Yeah. But assuming that there's nothing that can be done to stop uh, the progression of technology, I think for me, I'd probably be more interested in the curation and designing of people's music. Like, for example, just today I was thinking about how good my Spotify uh, Discover Weekly was. I don't know if you have this experience with it, but I find that some weeks it's really, really good. And then other weeks it's not. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to my roommate's Spotify today and he had like three tracks that have appeared in my feed. And uh, I think someone told me there's a meme about this somewhere, how people are noticing that their discover weeklies are very similar and that all of this music that they thought was obscure because there are these artists, you know, creating this music that aren't particularly popular or well-known. Um, but yet people are really responding heavily to their, to their music. And they think that, Oh, you know, I've got these interesting and refined tastes. Um, but then they hear somebody else's to Spotify weekly and then like they're playing the exact same quote unquote obscure song. 
Yeah. And my theory, I could be wrong, is that these playlists are actually created by a person and they actually potentially create the whole playlist from start to finish. Because the one I was listening to today did not, I mean, I've kind of noticed this for a while, but particularly the one I was listening to today did not sound like it was just randomly assorted. Like the music really flowed from one track to the next. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually think that someone has created the whole list and so they've, my theory is that there's someone or people that create like, let's say, uh, let's say there's like 50 discover weekly playlists going around at the moment. And that one type of playlist goes to a certain type of listener and one type of playlist goes to another certain type of listener, but essentially they're still kind of blanket solid lists that don't just randomly, um, change if that makes sense and so my overall point is that whether you think that's really sort of dark and scary or uh or whether you think that it's troubling that so much of your input is determined by somebody else i do like at the very least the fact that um someone has put some thought into the music and that it is actually curated um and that it's not entirely algorithmic it is a blend of algorithmic and curation. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm thinking we should uh, screenshot and share each other's uh, yeah. <laughs> Discover Weekly, see if we find yeah. any patterns. But, um, but yeah, with this, what you're mentioning of applying AI to, to essentially discovery and taste making, the thing that concerns me most is um, that doing that leads to some type of convergence in everyone's tastes you know the way that mm. um airbnbs for example like airbnbs being uh exclusively rented out like no one is actually living there full-time all seem to have the same fucking aesthetic um, right there was actually an article written on this and um the same with you know interior design uh, boards on Pinterest. I mean, the fact that you can look at uh, a space, uh, for me, it always happens with like an outdoor dinner that has been set up with those little the single light bulbs hanging on the, on the cord, sort of like yeah. hanging down. And there's just like, that's very specific look that you look at it and say, that's so Pinterest, you know, that's something you would see on a Pinterest mm. board. And... I think it's really cool how different aesthetics can be spread so rapidly and shared with so many people um, around the globe and people can sort of iterate on them. But I also feel that there's a convergence that happens um, and which I don't particularly like because I love, you know, being ex exposed to so many different things, you know, and finding people that are doing so many different things. I guess it's sort of bringing us back to, to where we started with this conversation of um, people just regurgitating content and regurgitating aesthetics instead of creating something that's totally novel and that's really gonna, you know, shake things up in, in the world. Yeah, we have come full circle. And I guess you've just highlighted at least for me, the fact that if you really want to be serious and 
work on expanding your mind creatively and beyond, then you basically have to switch off your devices routinely, um, completely, I guess, and, uh, and just stop any kind of algorithm affecting your life or influencing your life. Whether, you know, that looks like for someone one week of, of absolutely no internet per mm. quarter or every three months or whether it's once a year or, or whatever but uh it, it's just increasingly feeling like there's no other way if, if you really do want to be serious and and not just end up you know essentially uh replicating what everybody else is doing yeah yeah i just thought uh of my best friend right now he's an architect and an interior designer and um I once heard someone ask him who his inspirations were, you know, in, in both architecture and design. And I absolutely loved his answer to the question because he said, no one, none of them. Mm. And that his main inspiration is just the time that he spends out in nature and looking at plants, uh, looking at, you know, the designs that you see in, in trees and vines and leaves and so on. And that mindset is definitely reflected in the work that he does because he makes these super crazy buildings, decorate spaces in like very crazy psychedelic ways. And it's definitely not for everyone. And I think that'll be true of any creation that's not purely a, a remixing or regurgitation of something that came before it. But, um, I'd much prefer to have more of that in the world, you know, people creating stuff that's not going to be for everyone, but for the people who do like it, that it does resonate with them and speak to them. Uh, that's going to happen on a much deeper level than, than this safer content that's being put out in mass. Totally. Yeah. I feel the same way. I was just thinking of, Kanye West actually to cite a slightly controversial a very controversial figure he said in a David Letterman interview where David Letterman was talking about how you know potentially Kanye uh, has responsibility with his voice that he has a lot of power with his influence and Kanye said that he said to a friend of his uh, that also said the same thing that his response was, no, my power is that I'm not influenced. I think I'm articulating that more or less correctly. Mm -hmm. But essentially the idea is that, yeah, his real power comes from just not listening to what anyone else uh, says. And whether you love or hate Kanye, I do think that particular idea is a really important one. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I am increasingly becoming aware of and in trying to embody myself um because like most people i've been very guilty of caring what other people think and and very guilty of you know on some level subconsciously or consciously um riding certain trends and just being aware of like the market and what people want and what works what sells etc etc um i mean i don't want to you know, do myself a disservice and suggest that I've, that I've had too many compromises or that I've succumbed. 
um, to the to the masses or anything like that. I've, you know, I've always tried to just do my own thing, but it really takes a special someone to be able to completely block out those pressures and that voice that tells you you need to do a certain type of thing a certain way. And uh, yeah, I think for for creatives, and I would just say for people in general, like a big part of you know, living a fruitful life and really um, getting the most out of this world is being able to turn off that impulse of wanting to conform and and to really harness the, the voice deep, 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 deep within you that um, has something unique to say and, as we've suggested, uh, can be influenced from from real world experiences and primary experiences that that you know are, are going to just have your own take on a situation rather than somebody else's take on a situation. Yeah, totally. And, and I'm curious, in your case, uh, what does that look like for you? You know, besides, I feel like the first part is turning off the phone metaphorically, like cutting yourself off from all those content streams. Um, but then the second step has to be going out into the world or, or going in within yourself and searching for those, those primary experiences that are gonna inspire and influence your art. Um, so I'm curious in your case, what does that look like? So, Definitely very much it's constantly evolving in terms of how I can enact this philosophy, so to speak. And I am definitely not an arbiter or a glowing example of everything we've discussed. I feel like I've definitely fallen into the traps and failings that so many people have these days with technology consumption. But I would say that I... I mean, I, I basically don't really watch films anymore. I probably see six films a year-ish. Uh, um, I was, I think, more or less addicted to films in my 20s. There was a period where I had to watch a film a day. And obviously that was an informative part of my life and, and probably a very uh, important part in terms of developing an understanding of film. But yeah, these days it's very much the opposite. Uh, so that's a big thing in terms of, you know, whatever medium you're operating in just not really consuming much of that medium it's a little bit extreme but i yeah i'm personally living it when it comes to film i just don't really much watch much film or tv uh i'm trying to read more more than anything that's actually a Werner herzog thing as he's a big on reading he believes that um reading is the perfect way to learn about storytelling and i think for him it's also more of a direct pathway to the real world there's potentially a purity um to the reading experience where you know you're not if you're reading a book you're not reading what might be a panel of people deciding on on every uh, bit of stimulus that you're encountering so take for example a blockbuster film like sure uh, Michael Bay is the director but in a lot of blockbuster films there's a huge amount of filtering that will happen from from producers executive producers and studios etc and the whole idea of a, a panel of people you know making um, creative choices design choices is a very real thing so 
I, I'm just thinking on the fly now that there's probably something to be said on on uh, reading consumption as being a slightly lesser of evil when it comes to uh, finding an, an inspiration that already exists that isn't necessarily a real world experience, but nonetheless has been experienced just through one person only. Um, so that's the current flavor of the month when it comes to what I'm trying to do for myself personally. I guess I've been a little bit lucky when it comes to real world experiences that have had a huge amount of variety with those um, being mixed race. I spent a lot of my time in the Philippines growing up, which was just a stark contrast to Australia, which is where I primarily grew up. You know, the Philippines being a third world country definitely provided a huge amount of new and interesting stimulus and, and experiences that I think colored my upbringing and who I am today. And I just saw a lot of Asia growing up. Uh, I would travel a lot to see my mom in various Asian countries and, and then pursuing film mostly in the advertising world has also involved a lot of traveling. Obviously, uh, I told you about my my Papua New Guinea story, which is a result of of doing film and video work. And that's kind of been an ongoing thing where, yeah, I get thrust into these new environments and locations and new people. Uh, so filmmaking, if you're out there shooting, uh, has this embedded quality to it, which I, I do think is, is useful. Um, and yeah, a bit of other travel in my personal life, I think in recent years has, has helped a lot with this, but I think moving forward for me now, you know, we talked about uh, psychedelics, for example, and, and yeah, I mean, some trips to South America, I definitely think are on the cards and I feel like I feel like for me, as someone who lives in New York, I've just very much appreciated the necessity to get out of this city as regularly as I can financially afford. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, hopefully try and get some, some new experiences. Uh, and then the other side of the spectrum in terms of back to the curbing thing, yeah, like I said, I don't watch much film and TV and and I'm pretty good with the old social media these days. I don't spend too much time on them. And I'm pretty damn ruthless with my feed. And uh, I do think that's something a lot of people could benefit from. Like I don't follow very many people. And uh, yeah, I'm very, very careful about what goes into my eyeballs and ear holes. That's important. Yeah. So so maybe to go wrapping up, what role does shit posting on Twitter play in your creative process? <laughs> Was that a question that you pre-planned? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> okay. Very much um, in the moment. <laughs> um, that's a really good question, actually, because I feel like I've been ranting to some people lately about how much Twitter has literally changed my life. And a lot of it is just because of the fact that I feel like I've landed in this particular pocket of Twitter that is just so aligned with a lot of my values and it feels so reassuring to know that I'm not alone, that there are people that are sort of moving through the world in a similar way and seeing the events of the world play out in a similar way. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, in terms of like the creative aspect to it, I'm like increasingly finding that I'm looking back at old tweets and finding ways to intertwine them into my writings. So like, for example, with this 
feature film that I'm writing, there are some tweets that I think will literally be ideas in that film, uh, either story plots or dialogue or, yeah, really, really any, um, anything that, that might wiggle its way into, into the film. And that's like crazy to me, you know, this thing that so many people just don't take seriously as this, you know, almost guilty pleasure that you do while you're sitting on the toilet is yeah. actually, um, <laughs> is actually, you know, part of the formative stages of really big and important work. And I really put that down to the fact that the, the art of tweeting, so to speak, or shit posting, mm -hmm. uh, for many people is very much a stream of consciousness thing. I mean, that I think for a lot of posters, a lot of good posters is a big quality uh, of posting. You know, it's this kind of direct pathway to your brain whereby you just, you can type it out so quickly, you can hit send so quickly, you know that a lot of the tweets that do well tend to be these kind of bizarre snippets of your subconscious that yeah. even your, you yourself barely understand. And so there's this huge incentive there, you know, um, if you want it to be seen, if you want it to land on people's feeds, if you want it to get liked and retweeted, you kind of know that it's often best to not overthink it and to be as kind of raw in your decision-making as possible as you blurt out or vomit out these ideas in the nether regions of your brain. And so that forced process over now, you know, nearly two years of tweeting, I think has been really good for just regurgitating uh, or discovering uh, some stuff happening in, in my head that otherwise may have remained dormant and unseen had I not the incentive and, and, uh, and motivation to, to throw it out there publicly and have it recorded for me that then, you know, look back on it months and years later. Yeah. That's awesome to have that store of, of ideas to resurface later on in time and see which ones can, can be useful in whatever projects you have on the table at that moment. I'd like to throw the question back to you though. What, uh, what do you think shitposting has as value for you in your life? Hmm. Do you, do you feel like you're shitposting? Cause I mean, the thing that I'm always commenting is that I find that your posting is very sincere, which I, which I love. And I, I think I'm, you know, kind of a, a blend of doing that sometimes and sometimes not as much, but uh, do you think that you're more of a shit poster or how do you see your tweeting? Um, I guess I just use shit posting for, for all sorts of tweeting just cause I love the word. But um, yeah. if, if I, you know, answer that question more generally, just what being on Twitter has done for me. Um, in these past, I guess I've been like five months on Twitter. Uh, yeah, what you said resonates a lot, like just sort of tapping into my stream of consciousness and starting to share bits and pieces of it has been a really cool experience in the sense that previously I would have worried way too much about taking the idea and trying to refine it and package it in a way that I think would be, you know, good enough to put out there in the world and let it be seen by other people. 
um, again, this, this sort of pattern motivated by a mindset of trying to be liked and accepted by others, right? So using Twitter as an opportunity to just override that barrier, like not care about refining it, packaging it, editing it into something that's better, but just sort of off the cuff tweeting, like yeah, whatever crazy idea is going through my head uh, has been super cool. It's, it's definitely allowed me to, it's sort of like flexing that muscle of being able to take an idea and then express it um, with very little time or filtering or editing in between. Uh, and also, I guess, the potency of having to deliver it in 280 characters yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's been a lot of fun. And I've found how, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll tweet something or make a thread that's, has had too much overthinking, you know, it's like, I've already thought I want to do this thread about this subject. And I sit down and start typing it out. Like those never really land that well, nor are they super fun to create. Um, and on the other hand, the ones that just sort of, you know, I don't know, someone asked the question and it's just like, you have the exact answer for it because it's something that you've experienced, you've lived through and therefore what you start replying is coming yeah. um, from a very personal place. Uh, that's that, those are the experiences on Twitter that I love, you know, cause as you're typing it out, it's just like, it's sort of like you've been sitting around the dinner table and maybe you've been sort of quiet and then someone mentions something and you just have to say something about it. Um, yeah. And it's not so much because you're trying to make a point or have people agree with you, but it's just like, ah, I've lived this and I have this really intense experience relating to this and I just want to share it and put it out there for other people to see. Um, those are like the juiciest moments of tweeting. And I find that almost always they're accompanied by a lot of engagement from other people because I think that that sort of emotion um, does get transmitted in how you write it in, in the 280 characters and people pick up on that somehow. And, and it's, it's, it like activates you, it engages you. So, um, so yeah, I think that, that for me would be the, the biggest part of this Twitter experience. Uh, yeah. You've, you just helped me realize that it, it has been kind of reassuring, reassuring, and I guess a little bit heartwarming to be reminded or to learn that whenever you do express yourself in a way that is particularly raw and authentic and from the heart or soul, that it tends to do better than anything that is yeah, too well polished or considered or finessed. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just really nice to be constantly reminded of that from people you know i mean obviously it depends a little bit on on who's following you but so long as you have a decent crowd of followers uh i find that really encouraging and i think it has probably helped me not just with my twitter twitter experience but also just in life in general to know that deep down like people um really want you to kind of shed layers and and reveal yourself and uh and they're there for it. Yeah, totally. And, and I would say that, you know, people responding to, to this sort of, uh, this type of tweeting that's, that's 
like raw or very off the cuff or vulnerable or what have you. Um, I think that a lot of people engage with it is more reflective of this little corner of Twitter that we hang out in, right? Like I don't yeah. know if it would be the same in other parts. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I do agree with you that Twitter, like I see Twitter as like the five pound dumbbell, you know? Uh, it's like the, the first step to start building certain muscles. And in this case, the muscle is just speaking your mind more freely and like not self-editing as much or not worrying as much about how you're going to be perceived and, and, and being willing to dive into that, that vulnerability. And um, for sure, it's a lot easier to do it when it's being mediated through your smartphone and being shared with a bunch of, you know, anime avatars and uh, people without real names, like they're still, it's like lower stakes, you know? So it's easier to pick up that first weight. And I've found that as I get better and more comfortable doing it online, um, picking up the, the 10 pound dumbbell in real life with my in real life friends starts feeling a little bit easier than had I just gone directly to that level. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that idea can apply to a lot of, a lot of things. Um, so yeah, I definitely see Twitter as a super interesting, you know, laboratory in which to do all these experiments with, with yourself and, you know, before trying to do them in your real life. Yeah, and uh, I guess on that note, this is uh, another one of those experiments that we're doing right now, I guess. The podcast, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just experiments within experiments. <laughs> well, Byron, I think that's a good, good place to, to end this one. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, Harvey. It yeah. has been a pleasure. I... Yeah, great chat as usual. And thanks a lot for, uh, for coming on this podcast. Awesome. It was great. I'll chat to you later. All right. Cheers. Bye.